I hope that I can just give us all a little glimpse at the glory that God promises in this text. And I hope that we can all leave here today absolutely amazed at the wonders of God's love. So John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, that's where we'll be today. Now, you know, relationships with people are very messy and very hard in this world. I'm reminded of this almost every day. Uh, we, we hear stories about employers who lie and take advantage of their employees. We hear stories about leaders, whether political leaders or military leaders or, or even church leaders or teachers who abuse their authority to, to reap benefits from the people that have been entrusted to them. And even those who are closest to us, our, our closest friends or our family, our spouses, have a keen ability to, to exploit our weaknesses that they know so well. Relationships in this life are very messy. But we want to be known, we want to be fully loved, and so sometimes in light of our own messiness, we, we try to hide our shortcomings and we try to hide our messiness so that maybe people will like us a little bit more. Well, friends, I've got good news for you today uh, about one who knows you completely and one who you could never hide from if you even tried. He knows all of your junk and all of your mess. And even though he fully knows you, he has loved you completely. Amen. We have good news this morning from John chapter 3 and a sure hope that God loves us completely and knows us completely. So let's read John 3, 16 through 21 together. And then we're going to ask some questions and walk through this passage together. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the wondrous glory of your love for us. God, we, we sang about how great that love is. We sang that we stand amazed before it. We sang about how precious your son's blood is. God, I pray that all of those realities would press into our hearts as we open John 3, 16 through 21 this morning. God, I pray that you would give me wisdom to preach well so that your words are made clear. God, I pray that you would give all of us wisdom to hear and apply this word to our hearts so that we can leave this place amazed at your love and changed by an encounter with your word. 
And God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would make this time practical, that you would change our lives as a result of an encounter with the glory of your Son in your word this morning. And it's for your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The main point that I want to drive home to you this morning is that God really loves you and has called you to believe in his Son. God really loves you and has called you to believe in his son. We're going to see this point unfold by asking three questions and finding their answers as we walk through John 3, 16 through 21 together. So those three questions that I want to ask are, does God really love you? Question number two, why do we need to believe in Christ? And number three, what does it look like to believe in Christ? And as we answer those questions, we'll see the one key truth I want to drive home this morning, that God really does love you and has called you to believe in his son. So question number one, does God really love you? And friends, I've got the good news and the great privilege to tell you this morning that the answer to that question is yes. Without any doubt, without any wavering, with complete assurance, I can tell you that God really does love you. And he has shown that love supremely in the giving of his son. So let's read again, John 3:16. For God so loved the world. John doesn't start with us and how good we are and how worthy of love we are. John starts with God himself. So who is this God who loves us? He is the creator of all things. He made all things out of nothing by the word of his power. He is all powerful. He has no need or no lack. He is stronger than the strongest man. He is all wise. He has never needed any advice. He has never needed any counsel. He has done all things well because he is all wise and powerful. And we start here with a glimpse at God's glory and grandeur. Because if we can see God's glory clearly, then we'll see his love more clearly as well. Starting with God shows us that God doesn't love us because of anything that we bring to the table. That couldn't be further from the truth. God doesn't love you because he has some need that he needs you to meet. God has no need. He alone is all-powerful. God does not love you because he's lonely and he needs somebody to pour his love out onto and get love from in return. No, God alone is perfectly self-sufficient. He has always been and will always be. He was here before us and he will always be. God does not love you because he's impressed by you or, or impressed by your gifts or expecting some kind of contribution from you. God alone is all-powerful. God alone is glorious. God alone is magnificent. God alone is wonderful. Friends, God doesn't love you because of anything in you. He just loves us. He just loves us. And why does God love us? Well, first, who does God love? The the verse continues, for God so loved the world. Now, the world is is an important phrase in all of John's writings throughout the Bible and throughout John's gospel. We'll see it come up again and again as we walk through John's gospel together over the next few 
months. And whenever John uses the world, he's usually talking about worldly systems that are united in rebellion against this great God. And so when God says that he loves the world, he's making a radical statement that God loves those who have not loved himself. God is saying, when he says he loves the world, he's saying that he loves those who are in rebellion against him. He loves those who have brought nothing but rebellion and sin to his feet. Romans chapter 5, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, puts it this way. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. It goes on, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Our culture loves to paint a picture of God who loves us because we're worthy of love. He sees all the good in us and he loves us for it. Friends, that is a lie from the pit of hell. God does not love us because we're worthy of it. In fact, God loves us in spite of all of the reasons to the contrary. God loves us in spite of all of our sin. God loves you when everything in you is distinctly unlovable. You can't impress God. And that is frightening news. But you don't have to impress God. And that is glorious, good news. God loved the world. God loved those who have not loved himself. And when John says that God so loved the world, I think he's also getting at the fact that God loves the entire globe. Every tribe and every tongue and every nation will have representatives around God's throne for all of eternity. When God says that he loves the world, he's saying that he loves all kinds of people, not just people that look like me or people that look like you. And that's good news for a world that's plagued with racism and injustice and division in our world. It's good news to know that we worship a God who loves all kinds of people. And how has God loved the world? So who is the God who loves? He is the great, powerful, almighty God who created all things. Who does he love? He loves his enemies from every corner of the earth. And how has God loved the world? By giving his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. When it says that God loved the world so that he gave his only son, he's giving an evidence. He's showing how he has loved the world. Maybe some Bible translations say that, that God loved the world in this way, by giving his only son. You see, we believe that God is Trinity. There is only one God who created the heavens and the earth, and he alone rules and reigns over all that he has created. But this God has always existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've seen this again and again in John's Gospel, and we see it here again in John 3.16. And what we see here in John 3.16 is that the Trinity is united. They're not battling for control over the world. No, they're united. They have the same purpose. Some people like to believe that God was angry and wrathful until Jesus came and twisted God's arm and, and made the Father love us. And that couldn't be further from the truth. God didn't, or Christ didn't come to make the Father loved us. The only reason that the Father sent the Son was because he already loved us. Yeah. And at the same time, seeing, 
Seeing this uh, verse in light of the Trinity shows us that the Father didn't force the Son to come to the earth in some act of cosmic child abuse. No, no, the Son willingly came and laid down his life. That's a huge theme that we'll see later on in John's Gospel. The Trinity is united in love for the world and in a passion to save the world. How has God loved the world? By giving his only Son. So, but why does that matter? Why is it loving for God to send his only son? Why does it matter at all to my life or your life that a man named Jesus lived, died, and rose again 2,000 years ago? Well, the reason that matters for our lives is because it's not just something that bears implications for the past. It's not just something even that bears implications for now. It's something that bears eternal implications. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, so there's an expected result, there's a purpose behind God's sending of his son. God loved the world so that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So notice the chain of events here, the cause and effect in this verse. God loved the world and that caused him to send his only son and that caused the glorious reality that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that is very good news. So friends, find rest. Does God really love you? Yes. He knows all of your junk. He knows all of your sin, all of your mistakes and wrongdoing. He has known them. He has seen them. And he loves you in spite of it. In a world where relationships are so messy and it's so easy to feel lonely, especially in the unique season that we've been in in the last few months, we find rest to know that God loves us with no strings attached. And at the same time, if you're a Christian, this means that you can evangelize boldly. Sometimes when we go and we share our faith with the people around us that don't believe, whether our coworkers or our neighbors or our family members, sometimes we feel the need to apologize as if we're saying, well, you know, this is what I believe and, you know, it's okay if you don't know. We don't have to be so apologetic. We don't have to be so timid. This is good news for a lonely, hurting world that God has loved them. That's good news. So friends, let's go out and share it boldly. Question number one, does God really love you? And the answer is Yes, Amen. he certainly has. But that leads to another question. Why do we need to believe in Christ? If God really loves us, what difference will it make for us to believe in Christ? Well, the reason we need to believe in Christ, as verses 17 and 18 will show us, is that all of humanity has been condemned by our own sin. And Christ is the only remedy. So you may already know how all of this works. You might already know why we need to believe in Christ, but can you explain it to others? And so even if all of this is familiar to you, like a verse like John 3.16 tends to be, I want to I encourage you to keep listening because we can all improve on the way we communicate this to other people. Why do we need to believe in Christ? Verse 17 starts out a little confusingly for us when it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So why do we need to believe in Christ if Christ didn't come to condemn, but rather came to save? 
Does that verse mean that everyone is saved regardless of whether or not they believe in Christ? Since Christ didn't come to condemn, he came to save? Well, no, we keep reading. We always read the Bible in context. We never take one verse out and decide what it means for ourselves. We always read the Bible in context so that the Bible gets to determine what it means. And when we keep reading, we see that this is made clear in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So verse 18 makes it very clear that not all people will be saved, only those who believe in Christ. But while our salvation isn't universal, our condemnation is. Christ said that he didn't come to condemn, he came to save, because we didn't need anyone to come and condemn us. We did a perfectly fine job of that on our own. And that's what verse 18 means when it says that we're condemned already, because we've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. We're all worthy to receive a just and good punishment for our sins because we have all wronged the God of the universe. Now, before you get defensive and you start listing out all the reasons in your mind, you know, I'm actually not that bad. There's a lot of people worse than me. Let me just challenge you. I think that we could all agree that there is a lot of evil in our world, right? And we want that evil to be judged, We want oppressive governments to be shut down. We want sex traffickers to be thrown into prison. We want murderers to find justice. So there is a lot of evil in our world, and we want that evil to be judged, don't we? But but why shouldn't our evil be judged? And we all have evil. We've all done evil things. We've all placed our own preferences above the needs of others, loving ourselves instead of loving others. We've all wronged others, haven't we? And so why shouldn't our evil be judged? And you might say, well, you know, my evil isn't that bad. Like, sure, I've made some mistakes, but nobody's perfect. So I'm not really worthy of being condemned for all of eternity. But, but friends, we've sinned not just against one another and not just against ourselves, but we've sinned against the almighty God who created the universe. And so our crimes against him are exceedingly evil and wicked. We've sinned against a great God, and so we're worthy of a great punishment. You never sin in a vacuum. Your sin always has impact on other people, and it always is odious to the God who created the world. Our guilt is an objective reality declared by the judge of the universe, Almighty God. It's not a feeling you have where you say, well, I don't feel so good about myself. I'm going to just kind of try to pick myself up off the floor and feel a little better. No, your guilt is not a feeling. It's a reality. And if you start to feel the reality of your guilt, then you're in a good place because you're setting yourself up to realize that you have nothing to contribute and that God has a wonderful plan of salvation for you. So why do we need to believe in Christ? Because we're guilty. And what does Christ do about that? Why do we need to believe in Christ? Well, we've all sinned, but Christ was sent to the earth to live the perfect life that we could never live. And when we believe in him, then his obedience is credited to our account. When we believe in him, We are all worthy of a just condemnation for our sins, for our crimes against Almighty God. But the Father sent the Son into the world to die the death that we deserve to die. And when we believe in him, his death is counted in our place as our substitute. 
We need to believe in Christ because we're all dead in sin. But God sent the Son into the world to rise from the dead so that if we believe in him, we'll be raised up with him. We need to believe in Christ because he is the only hope for our lives. He is the only hope for the world. He is the only path to life and forgiveness. Christ is not one option to choose from the buffet of spirituality. You cannot go to Christ and say, well, I'll have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of my own good deeds and a little bit of new age spirituality, and then I'll feel kind of good about myself and I'll die and go to heaven. No, that's not how it works. Christ is all or nothing. Christ is an exclusive savior and only those who put their trust and their hope exclusively in Christ will be saved. There is no room for confidence in yourself. There is no room for confidence in another religion or another person. Christ alone can save us. God really loves you, and he has called you to believe in his son. So question number one, does God really love you? Yes, he really loves you, and he has shown that love in the giving of his son. Question number two, why do we need to believe in Christ? Because we are all condemned, and Christ is the only remedy. But that leads to another important question. Believing in Christ is obviously very important, right? Eternal life hangs in the balance. So we've got to be sure that we get this right. Our lives are at stake for eternity. God's glory is at stake. So we've got to be sure that, it, that we get this right. So that leads to a third important question. What does it look like to believe in Christ? And what I want to say is that believing in Christ doesn't just mean subscribing to a list of facts in your brain. Believing in Christ will change your entire life. Believing in Christ is not just a matter of changing your mind. It's a matter of changing your life. When Christ comes into your life, he doesn't just say, well, as long as you go to church on Sunday, then we'll be square. No, Christ demands allegiance in every aspect of your life. And what John does in the rest of this passage is he gives us a negative example of what it doesn't look like to believe in Christ and a positive example of what it does look like to believe in Christ. And so in verses 19 and 20, he's going to describe the life of the non-believer. And then in verse 21, he's going to close out by describing the life of the believer. And so as we walk through this passage together, I want to challenge you to think about what this means for your life. Try to determine which of these groups you're in. Because there are a lot of people who think they've been Christians, whether because their parents are Christians or because they walked an aisle or were baptized when they were kids, but that's not what makes someone a Christian. That's not what it looks like to believe in Christ. So let's all humbly come to this passage and open our hearts and let this passage examine us. And that's an appropriate way to come to this passage because he starts off with a heading. In verse 19, he says, And this is the judgment. Now, that's courtroom language. He's, John's saying that he's going to bring some evidence to prove why the non-believers ought to be condemned and why the believers ought not to be condemned. And the substance of that evidence, the core of John's argument, is that they had a different response to Christ. They had a different response to the light. So let's read verses 19 to 21 again and, and try to listen to all of the ways that John uses the word light and darkness, and how different people respond to that light and darkness. 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So in, that, in those three verses, we hear light and darkness a lot. And this is a major theme in John's gospel and in John's writings. What we see, what we've already seen in John chapter 1 and what we'll see again as we continue to walk through John's gospel is that the light isn't just an ethereal force about good and evil. No, the light is a person. The light is Christ himself. We see this most clearly in John chapter 8 where Christ boldly declares, I am the light of the world. And so what does it mean for Christ to be the light? Well, what does light do? It reveals the truth. I don't know if you're ever trying to find something in the middle of the night. You wake up and you're half asleep and you, you can't see anything because it's dark outside. I mean, as dark as it gets in D.C. It's usually pretty bright here. Um, but, but you're trying to find something and you can't see anything. And so you're reaching around and trying to find it. And then you finally cave and you're like, okay, I can't find it. So you find your phone and you turn on the flashlight and you realize whatever you were looking for was right in front of you the whole time. Have you ever had that happen to you? That's what light does. It reveals the truth. And Christ, as the light of the world, reveals the truth. He reveals the truth about God. Christ is able to reveal the Father as the light of the world because, as we saw in John chapter 1, he is one with the Father. So he's able to tell us true things about God. And Christ also reveals the truth about God's righteousness, the truth about what's good and what's right and what's not and what's wrong. Christ reveals the truth about God and the truth about God's righteousness. So Christ is the light of the world. And he comes into the darkness of the world and he shines a bright light to reveal the beauty of God and the beauty of God's righteousness and he calls the world to obey. Now, you might feel that God is oppressive and controlling for having moral standards that he applies to everyone all over the world. But actually, that's the most loving thing that God could do. Let me just give you an example or an illustration. My daughter is 16 months old, and she does not like diaper changes. In fact, I would go so far as to say on some days she actually hates diaper changes. And when we go to change her diaper, she will scream and she'll kick and she'll roll over and try to run away. It's a lot of fun. Come over anytime. You can take it over. No, that's fine. Um, but, but even though she doesn't love diaper changes, I'm not going to let her sit in her filth. I love her too much to allow her to sit in her filth. And even though the process is painful for her, I love her too much to allow her to sit in her filth. And the same is true about God. Your sin is not just filthy, your sin is dangerous. And God loves you too much to allow you to continue to sit in your filth. And so one of the most loving things that God can do to a sinner is call sin what it is. It is dangerous, it is filthy, it is evil, it is wicked, it has separated us from God. It put Christ on the cross. Your sin is filthy and God calls it that. And friends, that is love. 
God has the wisdom required to give good commands. He created the world so he knows how it works best. And so when God gives commands, that's not a straitjacket to keep you from having fun or to keep you from being happy. Rather, God's commands are like signposts that are pointing and saying, there's life that way, go that way, live that way, there's joy that way. God's commands aren't a straitjacket, they're signposts. God has the wisdom needed to give good commands to tell us what's right and wrong. And at the same time, God has the authority needed to tell us what's good and right and wrong. God has that authority because he created the world and he can do with it whatever he pleases. It just so happens that in his love for us, he commands us to do things that are good. He commands us to walk in righteousness. But he has the authority to do that. You see, there is a right and wrong in the world. And it's not determined by what you feel is right or wrong. It's not determined by what society thinks and feels is right or wrong. It's determined by what God has declared to be right and wrong. And for him to do that is love. But the world, those in rebellion against God, they hate Christ because his light shines on the ugliness of their sin. And what we see in verses 19 and 20 is that that hatred leads to more disobedience, which leads to more hatred, which leads to more disobedience. It's a wicked cycle. And it's not one that I want to be a part of. Read with me verses 19 and 20 again. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So friends, you could pile up defense after defense, uh, why you're not that bad or why the actions that you know are sinful are really okay for you to do. You could make those excuses all day long. I have no power to convince you or change your heart. But the truth of the Bible is that your sin is ugly God doesn't want you to sit in it anymore because he loves you, and you don't have to sit in it any longer. See, Christ doesn't just come as a blinding light to expose your darkness. Christ comes as a guiding light to tenderly carry you out of the darkness. He's good, and he doesn't want you to walk in sin. But that's what the non-believer does. The non-believer walks in sin and lives in sin. And then in verse 21, the passage shifts to the believer's response to the light. Verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. According to this passage, the central difference between the life of a Christian and the life of a non-Christian, or the life of a believer and the life of a non-believer, is our obedience to Christ's commands. And so as we look at verse 21, I just want to show you three facts about Christian obedience, three truths about Christian obedience that I hope will change your mind about your sin and his righteousness. Number one, obedience is evidence. Number two, obedience is essential. And number three, obedience is empowered. 
Obedience is evidence. So the passage starts out with a big but to show contrast, to show that the Christian's obedience, the Christian's walking in the light, the Christian's walking in accordance with works that have been carried out by God, it's the Christian's obedience that sets him apart from the non-Christian. Now, I want to be very clear to you. Your obedience does not save you. Your obedience can never be good enough to make up for your past sin or to assuage your guilt or to impress God. Your sin is too sinful and your heart is too broken to ever obey enough to impress or please God. But at the same time, while our obedience doesn't save you, obedience isn't optional to the Christian. If you are a true Christian, you will obey. John wrote another book in your Bibles that's all about this topic. It's the book of 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, we read, By this it is evident, evident, meaning evidence, there is an evidence who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So what is that evidence? Because I would really like to know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Am I a child of God or a child of the devil? Are you a child of God or the child of the devil? Well, what's the evidence? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if you claim to be a Christian, but you don't obey God, then First John comes at you like a sledgehammer, and it says, well, if you claim that, then what evidence do you have to claim it if you don't obey? In this life, our obedience will never be perfect, but it is increasing. It is slow, but it is increasing. And so month after month, if someone really is a Christian, then they will love God more and love himself less. It's, the process is slow, but year after year, the true Christian will love others more and love himself less. The process is slow, but decade by decade, the true Christian looks less like the world and more like God. The process is slow. And so it's easy to read verses like that and say, you know, feel guilt and feel, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I don't know if I have that evidence. But the fact of the matter is, that's why we do life together. Because if you look at your own life under a microscope, then you might either convince yourself that you're not as bad as you actually are, or you might convince yourself that you're way worse than you actually are. And this is why it's so important to, to be involved in the life of our church, not just to show up on Sunday and sing a few songs and wave hi to people and then leave and have a few super conversations in between. No, that's not involvement in church. That's not the kind of involvement that will give someone the ability to say to you, friend, I've seen your life and I see that there's fruit being born in it. I see that God is doing mighty work in you and through you. And that's amazing. God is growing you by his grace. You are a Christian. And at the same time, you might be walking in dangerous activity. And if no one knows you, who's going to say that to you? Who's going to be able to tell you, friend, you're walking in a dangerous path, and if you persist in this, then I don't have any reason to believe that you're a Christian. If no one knows you, then how are we going to do that? And this, by the way, is why we take church membership so seriously at our church. A few weeks ago, we voted in new members of our church. And when you raise your hand to affirm a new member at our church, you're not just kind of going through a formal process so that somebody can join the church. You're actually affirming, 
I've seen the fruit in that person's life, and I believe that they are a Christian. I believe that God has done a work in their heart to change them, to bring them new life. I believe uh, that, that this person is a Christian and can represent God and our church to the watching world. That's what church membership does, and it's a gift because it brings us into the kinds of relationships that bring assurance of our salvation. Our obedience is evidence of the work that God has done in our lives. Number two, obedience is essential. Verse 21 says again, but whoever does what is true. And so there actually is, like we said, a right and a wrong in the world. And it's based not on what we feel or what society feels. It's based on God and what he has declared. It's based on what God has declared in his wisdom. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, again, 1 John puts it this way, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So our, our obedience isn't just evidence that we're born again. Our obedience is essential to the eternal life that we're living. And so if we're not walking in obedience, then we might not be a Christian. The author to the Hebrews makes it even more clear. In Hebrews 12, 14, he says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be one who has believed in Christ fully and exclusively as the only hope for salvation and to submit to him as the Lord of our lives. Christians like to talk about making God your Savior and then making Him your Lord. And the Bible knows no such category. The only people that are saved by God are the people who have made Him their Lord or made Him their King. That's what the word Lord means. It means King. And so to be a Christian is to trust in Christ fully and not in yourself and to submit to Christ fully, to obey Him as He empowers completely. So does that... Does that contradict everything that we said before? Does that mean that we're actually saved by works? Well, no. And I want to share one more crucial truth about Christian obedience with you. And that is that Christian obedience is empowered. It is evidence, it is essential, and it is empowered. Verse 21 ends, Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God does, in fact, command us to obey. But at the same time, he gives us the strength that we need to obey. Amen. And again, that is good news. If Christianity was just about dying and going to heaven one day, that would be fine. But, but what's better news is a God that loves you enough to get involved in your mess and to help you be fixed to help you change your life, to help you walk in the fullness of life, to help you walk in the fullness of joy. God loves you too much to allow you to sit in your filth. And so if you really are born again, then he will empower you to live in obedience. Verses 19 through 21 use really strong language about hating the light and loving the darkness. We can't just decide to stop hating one thing and start loving it Instead, so if we're going to obey God, we need him to give us a new heart. We need to be born again, like we learned about last week. And, and what we see throughout the New Testament is that grace is not just the beginning of the Christian life, where God gives us a new heart and then kind of sets us on our way. 
No, grace is not the beginning of the Christian life only. Grace is the Christian life. It is the source of the Christian life and the substance of the Christian life. How did we become Christians? By grace. How do we live as Christians? By grace. Your obedience is not something that you can muster up on your own, and that's not what God has called you to do. Your obedience is something that God supplies if you truly are his people. Read with me Titus 2, 11 through 12. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace frees us from the penalty of our sin. Christ died and rose again so that we could die and rise again with him. God's grace frees us from the penalty of of our sin, but God's grace also frees us from the power of sin. God's grace comes, Titus 2.12 says, to train us. God is graciously with you, empowering your obedience. Christian, you don't graduate from grace. You don't start by grace and move on. It's grace through and through. And yes, God has called us to obey him. Yes, God has demanded that we discipline ourselves for godliness, we read in 1 Timothy, but God supplies the strength that we need to obey. It is grace through and through. It is not something that we have earned. Your obedience is not the reason that God loves you. In fact, God's love for you is the only reason that you could obey to begin with. Grace through and through. A pastor in the 18th century named John Berridge wrote a little poem about this, and I want to read it to you. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That is good news, friends, that God loves you too much to allow you to sit in your filthy sin. So in closing, just briefly, I want to share three truths with you, three ways that we can trust Christ. God really loves you and has called you to believe in his son. Well, what does it look like to believe in his son? I'm going to give you three ways. Number one, we trust Christ to save us. We trust Christ to save us. Our sin is wicked, and we are already condemned as a result of it. You might be realizing today that the reason you feel so guilty in this life is because you actually are but God has freedom for you. You might be realizing today that the reason you feel so lonely in this world is because you haven't come to experience God's world-saving, sin-stopping, sun-giving love. But God loves you, and he wants to save you. He's calling you to put your trust fully in Christ alone for salvation. And so if you're here today and you're realizing whether you've thought you were a Christian for 50 years and you're realizing now I don't actually think I am a Christian. We want to pray with you. Or maybe you're realizing, well, I never thought I was a Christian, and now I'm realizing 
that I need to become one and I want to become one. God's doing a work in my heart. We want to we wanna pray with you about that. So when, when I'm done, as the, as the worship team sings the last song, we want to invite you to come out into the hallway and we want to pray with you. We want to talk to you more about what it means to trust in Christ. We want to help you join our church and join this magnificent work that God is doing. Friends, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And friends, you can have your sins taken away this morning. Why would you delay for one second more? Trust him to save you. Number two, trust him to grow you. We are called to obedience if you're a Christian. And and that obedience, like I said again, that doesn't save us. Only Christ can save us, but he calls his people to obey him. And so it's, maybe you're, you're realizing that there's a particular sin in your life that you've been trying to slay for a long time and you haven't been able to. Again, we want to pray with you in the hallway. So come out when we're done here as the team sings the last song. We want you to come out into the hallway and confess that sin, drag that sin out of the darkness and into the light. And God has made a promise to you, friends. He has promised to you that the grace of God will go with you to train you to renounce ungodliness and to embrace godliness. So let's claim that promise for your life. And also, if you're not involved in a one-on-one discipleship relationship, that's a great environment for this to happen in. If you are involved in a one-on-one discipleship, that's a place where where you can go to to a Christian who's more mature than you, and you can say, I'm struggling with these sins, and God's brought it up in my heart, and I want to grow in this. I want God's grace to empower me to slay my sin. Whatever it is, don't be afraid to bring it up with your disciple maker or other people in our church. Drag that sin into the light. And if you are a disciple maker, make sure that you're making space for this in your meetups. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, that that part of discipleship is teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So ask your disciples, the people that you meet up with, what sin are you struggling with? What is God teaching you in your word? And how is that confronting your sin? How is that calling you to renounce ungodliness and live in godliness? And then you guys pray. You fall on your knees together and you plead with God to kill sin because we have no power in ourselves to do it. We need the grace of God to train us to renounce ungodliness and to live in godliness. We trust Christ to save us. We trust Christ to grow us. And finally, we trust Christ to guide us. Like we said, being a Christian is not about subscribing to a list of facts in your head. Being a Christian is about submitting all of your life to the lordship of King Jesus. He impacts the way that you relate to your family. So husbands, trust Christ to guide you in the home, to lead your wives well, and and to, to, to humbly lay down your life to serve them. You can trust Christ to guide you as you do that. You can trust Christ to guide you as you share this good news boldly with the people around you, the non-believers in your neighborhood or your, or your workplace or, or somewhere else. You can trust Christ to guide you because he is the Lord of your life and being believing in Christ looks like submitting everything to him. And at the same time, John 3:16 makes abundantly clear that God does not love a particular kind of people only, but that God loves the world. 
And throughout the Bible, we see a story of God calling representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him forever. That work is not yet done, and so we all have a part to play in finishing that work, in finishing the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. We all have a part to play in this. Global missions is not an optional add-on to the Christian life. It is a crucial cornerstone of the Christian life. For God to be glorified in all nations has to be our passion. It has to be our driving force. We are all called to pray boldly for God to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. We are all called to give sacrificially to our local church, which invests your donations and your gifts in kingdom advancing work around the world, like Jared prayed for a few minutes ago. And some of us are called to go, to leave the comforts of our home and to trust Christ to guide us to the nations. You can bring this good news of God's grand, glorious, global, gracious love to people that have never heard of it. You can be that vessel of good news. And you might say, well, I can't do that. I'm not smart enough. Or what about my finances? What about my career? And I want to get married someday. What about all that? No, you don't have to worry. You can trust the God who saves you and loves you to guide you. He is good to you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, God is big. Our sin is bad. But God's love is grand. Let's do whatever it takes to spread this good news in D.C., and to the ends of the earth. Again, I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to come back up here. And if there's anything that you need prayer for, whether it's you want to become a Christian, you're not sure even if you are a Christian and you want prayer for that, or if you are a Christian and there's sin in your life that you want God to slay, you want to be empowered, you want to be trained by God's grace to renounce ungodliness and to live in godliness, then please come out into the hallway and pray with us. This is why we're here, to help Christians grow to be more like Christ and to help non-Christians come to know and meet Christ. So again, don't let anything stop you. Today is the day of salvation from your sin. And if you're watching online, then feel free to send Pillar DC a message on any of the social platforms that you're watching on. Again, we would love to pray with you. So let's pray together. Father God, We have such a great need for you. And we thank you, God, that we have you. We thank you that you are ours. We thank you that you have loved us from eternity past with a grand, glorious, gracious, global kind of love. God, I pray that you would be glorified in this room. I pray that you would make our sin clear to us. I pray that you would help us to see our sin, to hate our sin, to love righteousness. God, we have a great need for you. God, you are so great. I pray that you would enlarge our vision of yourself in our hearts. I pray that you would help us to trust you with everything that we are because we need you. And God, 
God, I pray that you would, through Pillar DC, glorify your son, the only path to life. I pray you would glorify him in this room right now. I pray that you would glorify him in our city as many people come to know you. And God, I pray that you would glorify him among the nations where you have promised that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, I pray that you would bring that about this season. God, I pray that you would bring that about through our church. I pray that you would fill us up with humble trust and and desperate dependence on your son and on your love. It's for your name we pray. Amen.